All right. Well, if you would turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, we're about to read our master text. Matthew, chapter 1. And by the way, just so you know, um, the back half of Matthew, chapter 1, and the first two chapters of Luke are the Christmas story in its entirety. But we're going to just read a portion of this today in Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. So when you find Matthew 1, Verse 18, would you stand up with me and let's honor the reading of the Word of God. We'd like to show the Word of God great honor around here. So starting in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. See, he thought that she had gone out and had an affair. But, verse 20, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Praise the Lord. Well, first of all, there was a a prophecy uh, presented in that reading And uh, I want you to be familiar with some of these prophecies from the Old Testament that that reading quoted some of. There's a a couple of them that we read uh, around here at Christmas time fairly regularly. The first one is on Isaiah 7.14. This is leading up to a very important point here. Uh, And that prophecy says this, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And the next one is from Isaiah 9, 6, which says, For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, these prophecies that we read in the book of Isaiah, of course, speak of a coming Messiah, a Savior who would redeem mankind from our sins and reconcile us back to God. And I want to give you some observations about those passages. You see, uh, first of all, uh, it says that the Messiah will be called Emmanuel. Now, that's not a name. It's a title. It's a description. It means God with us. You see, Jesus, when he walked the earth, was a manifestation of God in flesh. And on that point, The prophet Isaiah also mentions that, as you see there in Isaiah 9, 6, that the Messiah is mighty God. So here we we see a reference to the Trinity, that God exists both in Father and Son, but also Holy Spirit, three in one. So 
For those people that have some of these intellectual barriers to faith, and I understand those intellectual barriers to faith, but this is a great way to overcome some of those intellectual barriers right there because these were prophecies given more than 700 years before they actually happened. The book of Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus actually walked the earth. And Jesus fulfilled not just these prophecies about himself, but all the prophecies, 300 plus prophecies about himself. Jesus fulfilled them all. So uh, if someone has some of these intellectual barriers to the faith, I think that's one way to help to overcome some of them because the Bible is the most unique book in history. No other religious writing deals with prophecy. You know why? Because if you write down a prophecy and it doesn't come true, you've just invalidated yourself as a, as, as a legitimate religious um, sect, if you will. But the Bible has hundreds of prophecies, 300 plus, just regarding Jesus. And he fulfilled all of them. All of them. So the fact that Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah more than 700 years before he would walk the earth and Jesus fulfilled all of them, that's... That's evidence right there of the divine inspiration of the Bible and that we can trust the Bible about what it says about Jesus being our Messiah, our way to be saved, our Savior. Now, by the way, on a kind of an unrelated note, I want you to notice also that these prophecies given were in the present tense. See, the book of Romans tells us that God calls things that are not as though they were. See, in the mind of God, these things were established long before they actually happened. So he announced them hundreds of years before they actually took place. And history does indeed record that they happened just as the scriptures foretold. Praise God. But that's not my primary focus this morning. Those are my introductory thoughts. I actually want to deal with a, a question this morning that I want to grapple with um, and... Um, uh, here's the question I want to grapple with. Is celebrating Christmas pagan? <laughs> All right, well, some claim that the traditions of Christmas are pagan in origin, and it's around this time of the year that I, I see the Facebook posts and uh, I see some of the remarks regarding the uh, supposed demonic and uh, pagan origin of some of our celebrations of Christmas. So let me just say this as we move forward here, and this will be kind of a just a short part of my teaching this morning, but I want to make an important point about this. Listen very closely. Satan wants to pervert everything good associated with God. So he creates substitutes. He creates substitutes. One example of this, I have to be a little careful how I word this because I know there's young ones present, but, but a very good example is that of intimacy between a husband and a wife. That's a very good thing. The, the, uh, God created that. But because it is good and because God did create it, Satan wants to pervert it. And he's done a very good job of doing that. Um, and so that act of intimacy is also actually used in pagan satanic rituals. And so if people that are denouncing our various celebrations of Christmas as pagan, well, they need to be intellectually honest about that thing and go all the way with it and admit, okay, if I'm not going to you know, have anything to do with anything that is even remotely quote-unquote pagan, well, they just need to go all the way with it and just abstain from intimacy as well because those things are used in satanic rituals. 
Or, here's another one, you should never go eat Chinese food if you want to go all the way with it and be intellectually honest, because as soon as you step into a Chinese restaurant, there's a statue of Buddha right there in most of them. So people that are denouncing these quote-unquote pagan associations with Christmas, um, you might just want to be intellectually honest about that thing and uh, not go eat Chinese anymore. If you don't want to have a double standard. Are you following me? Okay. Now, as it pertains to Christmas, let's get back to that. Um, a good example uh, is St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas is a good example of how Satan likes to substitute things that are good. See, St. Nicholas was a real person. He was a much-loved priest in a region called Myra, which is now modern-day Turkey, in the third century. And he went around doing good and helping the poor and blessing children. And, well, of course, as you know, St. Nicholas has morphed into the modern-day children's fairy tale that we know as Santa Claus. And the greatest gift to the world, which is Jesus, celebrated by the exchange of gifts for centuries now, has morphed into total materialism that has nothing to do with Jesus. So, as the saying goes, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay? See, celebrating the birth of the, of the Savior is a good thing. Lights, gifts, decorating trees, and especially the songs about the Savior, some of which we sang this morning. I'm all for it. I love all of that stuff. As a matter of fact, I was just talking to Dan this morning, and, and uh, he and I were having a brief conversation about the different ways that we our family celebrate Christmas. And, you know, our family just goes absolutely all out when it comes to gift giving. We're, my wife and I are extravagant in our gifts to our children. Some of you may think we go way overboard in the way that we do it if you saw how we do Christmas. Um, we got it naturally. Donna's uh, family was like that and so was mine. But I was thinking about that and I was thinking about, do we go overboard? Is this too much? But then I thought, you know what? God was so extravagant in his gift to mankind of giving us his son, Jesus. So I actually like the fact that we go kind of overboard in our celebration of Christmas because it's symbolic of how God went overboard, if you will. He was a very extravagant to us. Amen? Praise God. But I do want to encourage us, let's keep the main thing the main thing. See, this whole thing has always been about Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm going to show you some evidence of that right now. So the name Christmas actually comes from the mass of Christ. So the word Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. That is a term that means anointed one, all right? And mass is a service centered around the, ob uh, the observance of communion or the Lord's Supper. So a mass service, which is sometimes called communion or the Eucharist, depending on what denomination or circles that you belong to, is where Christians remember that Jesus died and then came back to life. So the original Christ Mass service was focused on the coming Messiah in the form of the birth of Jesus and was the only service that was allowed to take place after sunset and before sunrise the next day. So people had it at midnight. So this is where we get the name Christmas or Christ Mass shortened to Christmas. Now, some people claim that Christmas and the modern day celebrations of it um, 
is pagan in its origin by citing the Roman festival of Saturnalia, which, is, uh, which honored the Roman god Saturn and took place not on December 25th, but December 17th through the 23rd. But nevertheless, some people still associate that date of December 25th with Saturnalia and also other pagan celebrations of the winter solstice, which also take place about the same time of year. However, a closer look at Christian history may tell a different story. You're looking there at a uh, a stained glass painting of the Annunciation of Mary. I'll give you a little bit more detail uh, about that here in a moment. Uh, As I'm doing so, I want to begin by saying that a very early Christian tradition uh, marked the 25th of March as the day when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and announced to her that she would have a very special son who would be the savior of the world. And that angelic announcement is still celebrated today on March 25th in some circles with a celebration known as the Annunciation, the Annunciation of Mary. It's in, that's uh, in more liturgical churches, they celebrate that. Well, as you know, the length of time that it takes for a mother to carry a baby full term is nine months. So nine months from March 25th to December 25th, that's nine months, March 25th to December 25th, that's nine months. So some sources cite this as the reason that December 25th was chosen for the celebration of the birth of the Savior into the world. And, by the way, I think it's fitting, actually, that we celebrate the birth of the Savior um, near the winter solstice. And let me tell you why. First, the winter solstice simply marks the changing of the seasons, which happens on December 21st. It's the time of the shortest day and the longest night and marks the time when days begin to lengthen again. And by the way, let me say this. God made the winter solstice, folks. The changing of the seasons was his doing, not the pagans. (laughs) Okay? Uh, Well, it's actually quite fitting then, I think, that we celebrate the birth of the Savior in the bleak midwinter when the world appears to be dead and the Trees are bare and colorless, and it's the darkest and coldest time of the year. And it's during this time when we're, when we're experiencing the changing of the seasons that we are proclaiming a turn of history from darkness to light, from coldness to warmth, from death to life, and uh, from chaos to peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Amen? As that Christmas song says... It's the most wonderful time of the year. And in celebrating the second most important event in history, which is the birth of our Savior, it should cause us to pause and reflect on why Jesus came. And that points us to the most important event in history. And that's pictured on the screen right there. The birth of the Savior eventually gave way to the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross as he paid for your sins and mine. You see, Jesus took the punishment for your sins and mine on that cross, and that sacrifice means that we've been given a way of escape from God's wrath against sin. Make no mistake, there is wrath against sin. God will pour out his wrath against sin. Make no mistake. But the sacrifice of Jesus gives us a way of escape from God's wrath against sin. 
Are you happy about that? Praise God. All we have to do is place our faith in our scapegoat, our Savior Jesus, repent of our sins and confess Him as our Lord, and voila, we've been translated out of darkness, the Bible says, into the kingdom of His dear Son. See, listen, Jesus does for us what a group of rescuers did for a group of children in Colombia last May. You may have seen this story. Um, on May 1st of this year, a small aircraft with a group of seven passengers, three adults and four children, crashed into one of the most inhospitable places on the planet, the Amazon rainforest. The small Cessna aircraft was flying from one village to another, um, uh, just south of Bogota, Colombia, um, just a, hundred, uh, a few hundred miles away from one location to the next, just south of Bogota, Colombia. And evidently, that single-engine plane failed mid-air and crashed into the trees of the dense jungle and then plummeted to the ground. And all seven passengers were assumed dead as the chances of surviving such a crash is very, very small. And the search area for the rescuers was huge. It was 100 miles long and 20 miles wide. So it was literally like trying to find a needle in a haystack, trying to find this crash site. So it would take Colombian special forces more than two weeks, but they finally located the downed craft and they were saddened to find within the plane the dead bodies of three adults. But they were puzzled that they saw no traces of the four children, aged 13 years down to 11 months old, all siblings. They were nowhere to be found near the crash site. So Columbia ramped up their rescue efforts. They sent 150 soldiers along with rescue dogs and additional volunteers. And every so often, they would find a tiny clue of hope. They found a baby bottle. They found a toy. They even found a used diaper. Now, the older children had been raised near the jungle's edge, so they had been taught uh, what bugs were dangerous, what uh, snakes uh, were, were poisonous, etc. But who could ever imagine that, that these four small children could survive alone in the hostile Amazon rainforest for any length of time? Well, days turned into weeks, and the chances of finding them seemed to plummet. Rescuers dropped food from helicopters into the jungle. They dropped water. They even dropped whistles into the jungle, trying to empower the children to survive long enough to be found. And after more than a month of effort, someone finally raised this possibility. Could it be that the children are hiding from us. And it turned out that was exactly the case. See, it was later determined that on more than one occasion, the rescue team was within 50 feet of the children and didn't know it. But the children didn't know if the rescue party was there to hurt them or to help them. This was Columbia, after all. And maybe the parents had been diligent to teach them to not trust strangers. So the children didn't know how to respond. 
And they ran and hid from the very ones who had been sent to save them. Now, any chance that might serve as a parallel for humanity? How many times have we turned away from the one who has come to help us? See, you know, when Adam and Eve heard the sound of God walking in the garden after they disobeyed, they hid as well in the trees of the garden and they ran from God. But while they weren't looking for God, guess what? God came looking for them. I wonder if there's anybody in the room right now. I know most of you, but there's a few that I don't know. I I wonder if there's anybody in the room right now who has been hiding from God, running from Him. You may not even be sure why you're at church today uh, listening to a pastor, or if you're listening online, you may not even be sure why you're listening to a message like this on a Christmas Eve. But God has orchestrated this moment today because even though you've been hiding from God, He's come looking for you. Maybe you've been assuming that You already have it all together. Or maybe you've assumed that you've fallen so far that God would never want to have anything to do with you. Well, both assumptions are wrong. No, you don't have it all together because we've all rebelled against God and run the other way. And no, you haven't fallen too far from God. He still wants you if you'll just come out of hiding. See, when God was looking for Adam and Eve in the garden, he called out, where are you? Not that he didn't know, of course, because God did know. I just think that he was wanting Adam and Eve to reflect on where they were and what they were doing. What if you were to turn right now and say, God, I'm coming out of hiding. See, God's on a rescue mission of his own, ladies and gentlemen, to rescue you and me if we'll just respond to him. And he's dropped little messages along the way to give you clues that he's still looking for you. And the fact that you're listening to this message today is evidence of that fact right there. You know, that Colombian army never gave up looking for those children. Um, They were determined to find them, and they came up with an ingenious plan. You're going to love this. They lowered speakers down into the, the jungle from the helicopters above, and this detail is really key right here. you got to get this. Through those speakers, they played over and over an invitation recorded by a beloved grandmother. A brief message that said over and over, stay in one place. A rescue team has been sent to help you. And on day 40, all four children were found. There's a picture right there. Yeah. They were emaciated, insect bitten, weak, and of course very afraid. But they were all found alive and treated and taken home. See, the grandmother's voice called them out of the shadows. They just needed a voice they could trust. And so do we. And it's for that reason, ladies and gentlemen, that God became flesh. He became a regular guy that we could identify with through Jesus. 
He became a carpenter, a blue-collar man, and he didn't take up residence in some mansion or even an upscale townhouse in some Arabian city, but rather a humble upbringing in a little forsaken Jewish town called Nazareth. And he lived 33 years on this earth as a human so he could identify with every emotion that you've ever had, every temptation you've ever faced, and every disappointment you've ever walked through. See, he came on a rescue mission of his own to talk you out of the darkness into his marvelous light, to let you know that you don't have to hide anymore because your sins have been paid for when Jesus died on that cruel cross. I feel like I, say, I need to say that again. You know, God is on a rescue mission just like those, those soldiers in that rescue team. He's on a rescue mission of his own to talk you out of the darkness into his marvelous light, to let you know that you don't have to hide anymore, folks, because your sins have been paid for, all of them, no matter how bad, because Jesus took all that punishment upon himself when he died an agonizing death on that cruel cross. All you have to do is accept the offer it's yours, free of charge, because it's a gift. Amen? It's a gift. So you probably recognize this passage right here, Luke 2.14. Uh, some of you, it, glory to God in the highest, it says, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now, folks, that means peace on earth to mankind, specifically to those who respond to the offer. Look, this offer isn't open, I should say it is open to everyone, but not everyone will get to get in on it. Let me say it that way. You have to respond to the offer. You have to respond to the offer to get in on it. So I'm going to leave you with three points today regarding how to respond to the offer. Would you like to hear that? Amen. How to respond to the offer. Number one, acknowledge that you are a sinner. You and I are sinners. A, a rebel against God and that your own attempt at good deeds will never save you. I'm going to give you some scriptural evidence of that. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, we are all, listen to the language here, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, in, order, in other words, when we try to take pride in them, when we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one in and of themselves, through their own efforts, can ever meet God's standard of righteousness. That's why Jesus had to die and take your punishment. And Ephesians 2.9, salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it has nothing to do with your good deeds. Your good deeds aren't going to save you. Salvation doesn't work like this. You try to do more good deeds on a balanced scale to outweigh your bad deeds. It doesn't work that way. Your bad deeds automatically outweigh your good. And the only way that you can tip the scale is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Secondly, how to respond to the offer Repent of your sins, which means not just being sorry, but turning around and going the other direction. 
repent of your sins and acknowledge that it's only through faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you on the cross that God will cleanse you of those sins. That's the only way. Through that sacrifice on the cross, he will forgive you and then amazingly make you his child. You know, I've heard from time to time some, some people say, well, we in this world, we're all children of God. Did you know that's not true? We're not all children of God. The Bible tells us that if we don't respond to the offer, we remain children of Satan. Satan is your daddy. Until you respond to the offer. And then God translates you out of darkness into his marvelous light and makes you his child at that point. Praise God. Ephesians 2.8 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. And John 3.16, the famous one that we, uh, I think most of us probably know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that word believes that was translated from the Greek into English is a word that literally means not just to mentally assent and agree with and believe that he's there, but you cling to the Savior. You cling to him for dear life. That's that word believe. It's a prestuo in the ancient Greek. It means to believe and to cling to, like a life raft. So for God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son, that everyone who believes and clings to him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's one more, and that's confess openly that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And here's a scriptural reference for that. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart you believe and are justified, and with your mouth you confess and are saved. Donna, would you come up and play something for a moment? I just want to ask you, like I said, I don't know everyone in the room today. I know most of you, but not everyone. So it would be, it, I would be remiss not to provide an invitation today. Again, I don't know some of you. So I don't know where you are spiritually. We may be a room full of believers today. We may be some people that are either backslidden away from God. Maybe you made a, a decision in your, your life at one point to serve him, and maybe you've fallen away and been living for yourself. Or maybe you've never made that commitment in the first place. And uh, I'm going to ask our uh, prayer team to come forward and just stand up here because um, I'm going to give this invitation. Um, let me just say it this way. You know, responding to the invitation that I just gave you on the screen, um, that third one there says, confess openly that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. It's to be done publicly. Now, I know that we here in the American church like our sophistication and we don't like to be singled out, but in the kingdom of God, it works a bit differently. Uh, God couldn't care less about your sophistication. He says, if you will acknowledge me before people, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before people, I'm going to deny you before my Father in heaven. So this is something that's done publicly. So with every head raised and with every eye open, I'm going to give you an opportunity 
for any of you that may fit that description, either you've served the Lord at one time and you've fallen away and you've not really been serving Him faithfully, or you've really never made that decision at all. You've never, you don't ever remember a time in your life where you publicly proclaimed your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm gonna give you that opportunity today. I'm, I'm gonna give what's happening over here just a minute here. So would you just be prayerful with me for a moment and just be respectful of what's happening over here. Someone responding to that invitation, praise God. Just, to, just be in prayer for that right now. Just Can I ask you to just join silently in prayer? You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.